Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Okay, so on the new website, we have just released a bunch of new webinars, and I am super excited. My plan is to do a monthly webinar going forwards. So we've just launched eight new webinars for the rest of this year and even leading into 2023. You guys are going to be able to access all of these webinars completely for free. I'm not going to charge for any of these, even though I probably could. They're going to be very, very high value. But you can access all of these for free if you guys go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar. So you can either go that route or if you guys just go to the new website and you go to expatmoney.com and you scroll up to the header menu and under resources, there should be a tab there that says webinars. Go to that, look at the page. We've got webinars on a bunch of different countries in Latin America. We've got some crypto ones coming up. We have different types of investment. It's going to be really excited. So what I want you to do is kind of take a second here pause this episode. Don't forget about this episode. This episode is still really important to listen to. But pause this episode, go to the website and register for the webinars that make sense for you. So if you go to expatmoney.com and go to the header, you're going to be able to find the drop down on resources or just go directly and go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. These are going to be a lot of fun. We're going to do them live. I think most of them are going to be at 7 p.m. Central time. We might have a couple that are starting at different times, but every single month, new webinars on going offshore. Okay, go check it out and let's get back to the episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is the Senior Vice President of Sharf & Selden, Wealth Management of Raymond James. He specializes in portfolio management with a special passion for precious metals and mining companies. Please welcome to the show, Larry Sharf. Larry, how are you? Great, Mikkel. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Now, I heard you on a Mutual Friends podcast, and I listened to your episode, and I went, wow, this is super interesting. I want to have you on. I want to be able to talk to you about precious metals and some of the mining companies. But before we get into kind of all of that fun stuff, maybe you can explain to us how you got into this field, because I know you have a long history and, and really a passion for this space. Well, ironically, I started at about five years old when I was at my mom's knee collecting Lincoln pennies pushing them into those little blue books. From there, I began in middle school and high school. I used to go down to the bank and buy rolls of quarters and dimes and nickels looking for silver. Then I began learning about the history of money through the history of coinage. And it was just fascinating. As uh, I progressed through college in the late 70s during the inflationary period, I became keenly aware of the problems in financial society and 
started reading about gold and silver. And at that time, uh, I started building a library, reading everything I could about monetary systems. Soon after, I started corresponding with the von Mises Institute and learning the works of uh, Murray Rothbard and Frederick Hayek and von Mises. Ludwig von Mises, if you don't know, is the uh, mainstay or the leading speaker of the Austrian School of Economics. And it made more sense to me than any other system I had read about. So from an introduction from a friend, I began working in Minneapolis at uh, Investment Rarities in 1982 for a fellow named Jim Cook, who was of similar philosophy. And they sold gold and silver bullion, rare coins, and some other items. And due to my interest and background, uh, I became friends with the numismatist, Dennis Wegley. And he allowed me to come into the secure room and handpick some of the rare coins for the clients that were interested in those particular items. And soon after that, I became securities licensed and began to understand that there was another way to play gold and silver through the mining companies and began contacting the CEOs of some of the Canadian firms and became friends with are now legends of the industry like Rob McEwen from Gold Corp and Paul Penn, who began Agnico Eagle and many others. And we spoke on the phone. I was invited up to the annual meeting in Toronto for Agnico with my family. Years later, that was ended up to be the first mine I visited in 1995 uh, when I went down to the uh, 1700 level in the Laurent mine with E.B. Shirkus, who was the chief mine man at the time. And they were preparing to drill deep from there. That was the excitement about it. And that actually was a game changer for that mine. But every relationship I developed back then, I'm still friends with those guys today those that are still living. Uh, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to know these people and be involved in the, the geological community, I call it, the, the geologists, great people to work with. Amazing. Well, I want to get into all of the different mines in the countries you've visited, because I think that's super interesting. But before we jump into that, I mean, you've listed some very famous authors in the libertarian and Austrian school of economics space. You mentioned something in there that that was the best monetary system that you had seen, but this was when you were very young. I'm kind of curious, have you found anything else that works better than Austrian school of economics? Not really. And I wouldn't say that's perfect either. I think Winston Churchill said uh, democracy is a terrible system, but compared to everything else, it's the best out there. There's something to the effect of that. And I feel the same way about the Austrian School of Economics compared to monetarism or Keynesians or anything else. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. I don't think that there is a perfect system out there. But when you compare it to some of the things that are being pressed in the world right now, I would happily return to a lot more conservative monetary policy, especially over the last two years. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Okay. And you, you also mentioned that you really got into this through collectible coins and these types. Are you still interested in that or are you really just focused on the mining side and not into the collecting side anymore? I don't think I'll ever lose the passion for looking at rare coins and admiring the beauty and the history behind them. I don't actively collect anymore. I have you know, a number of items that, you know, I enjoy going through. And every once in a while, a friend or a neighbor or someone will say, oh, you have some coins, go ask Larry. And I'll sit down and I'll sift through 500 different silver coins and boxes of dollars and kind of give them an idea. This is worth something. These are not. It's still fun. And I love them. Amazing. I mean, I've collected coins, but not from the super rare side. I've collected coins of more the different countries that I've been to. And it kind of reminds me of my trip there. So that's on a very different side, but still an interesting hobby. So 
talk to me then about the mines. You, you mentioned that that was the first mine that you went to. Did that really spark an interest and a passion for you right off the bat? Or how did that kind of develop? Well, I had known the management at Agnico Eagle for quite some time. And I was thrilled to get the invitation to go up by the CEO, Paul, who has passed many years since then. But he founded Agnico back, I believe it was 69 or early 70s. It's been a very long time operating mine and always a very high quality. So when I went up to visit and I got into the shaft to go down to uh, the 1700 level, that was very exciting. I mean, it's an elevator, but it's a very different kind of elevator. And you have to suit up and put on boots and wear the, the hard hat and all the safety precautions that are necessary when you're underground. And it was terribly exciting. It was a very long walk, a mile. We walked horizontally to see all the way to the end of the tunnel. It's a little bit mind-blowing when you're realizing that you're surrounded by rock and you reach the end of the tunnel and you're facing a wall of rock and you realize there's only one way to go back out. So it's not for everybody, but it's still thrilling to go underground and see the workings of mines as much as it is for the above-surface heap leach mines. Okay, so I assume that there are probably many different types of mines. So maybe you can actually talk us through the different types of mines at the beginning so we understand a little bit about the lexicon. Okay, so generally speaking, there are two types. You have your underground mines, and then you have uh, heap leach mining. Heap leach mining began around the time my career started in the mining industry in the early 80s. Heap leaching is when you are dealing with very low-grade ore, maybe about the size of a three by three by four foot rectangle, if you can imagine, that's about a ton of rock. And a heap leach mine today can mine a half a gram of gold out of that ton of rock. So they're taking this rock and pulverizing it to sizes about a golf ball or sometimes less and putting this pebbles on top of a giant football field size pads and the cyanide is then sprinkled over these sometimes 20 to 30 foot high mountains of pebbles, and the gold is leached out of the rock. The cyanide flows down to the bottom of the pad into a tube that runs it into the, a carbon column, which then extracts the gold from the solution. Then after this is done, sometimes it's 60, 90 days. It could be a little bit longer, and the size of the rock depends on the permeability of it the porousness of it, how easily the cyanide can get to the gold. After it's completely leached out, they run a neutralizing solution through that rock and then take it and put it back in the ground again. So it's very environmentally safe. The ponds where they temporarily run the cyanide into, we call them pregnant ponds because they're filled with gold solution in the solution. They are often netted, have uh, horns to blast to keep the birds out of them. So again, environmentally secure. It's a closed system. So the cyanide never gets out into the environment. So that was developed. Glamis Gold was one of the early innovators of that back around 1985. And many companies have since developed and perfected the techniques. And that's the interesting thing about mining. Technology, every cycle is getting better and better. And where you used to heap leach a gram or two gram gold, you can now heap leach 0.3 gold. So it's really quite amazing. The other major type of mining is underground. That's hard rock mining where you're sinking a shaft or drifting into the side of a mountain through what we call a drift. 
a tunnel, basically, and you're going down to reach the ore body that you've drilled from surface and you believe is there through 3D modeling. And artisanal miners are a great group to follow. These are people that have been mining by hand since the 14 or 1500s. And you follow their workings. And they were amazingly able to dig their tunnels. You see some of them in the old Western movies because they were only able to get at the high grade gold or silver. They didn't have the technology to get the lower grade or new technology has allowed current miners to go into those old workings and get tremendous amounts of material that the previous miners didn't have the technology to access. So these underground mines can go very deep. They're now reaching a mile in South Africa and also in North America. And the workings are very extensive. You have to have tremendous amount of venting and water solution problems. It gets quite expensive. Well, I can kind of imagine it's similar to the oil space where Yes, we know that there's oil in places, but it is not cost-effective to actually drill for it because of the technology we have. But years later or decades later, they can actually go back to a place and access things. I'm kind of guessing it's similar in the gold mining space as well then. Yes, actually, back in the early 80s, the underground mining really didn't take place much less than six or seven grams per ton. Now I'm seeing mines that are underground mining two grams per ton or less, depending on the permeability, the ease of blasting the rock, the uh, occurrence of how many veins are nearby. Uh, There's a lot of geological formulas that go into it. Well, then in the same vein, I kind of assume that as the price of gold rises, it can actually become cost-effective to do some of these things. And if the price of gold drops, maybe it is prohibitive then. Exactly. In addition to the rising cost of gold, you also have to factor in the rising cost of getting to it. So labor's gone up, fuel's gone up, uh, reagents have gone up, the cost of equipment. So they tend to move, since gold tends to go up in inflationary periods, the cost of all your materials and labor tend to go up as well, commensurate with it. Yeah. And then probably over the last two years with COVID and people being locked down, that's probably changed the dynamic quite a bit as well with quarantines and all of this stuff. Exactly. Up in Trudeau's Canada, his restrictions were devastating for some companies. I know of a silver mining company up in the Yukon that has been crippled by the inability to move men and equipment across provincial borders due to the COVID restrictions in Trudeau's Canada. They're still surviving today, but the mine plan has continuously got moved out quarter by quarter as they are delayed and delayed and even today delayed in getting equipment. Okay. So you mentioned two main types of mines. Now, the first mine that you went to in Toronto was which type again? Well, it was a Toronto-based company and the mine is in Val d'Or, Quebec, which is a very prolific mining district. And that was an underground mine called the La Ronde Mine. And today I think it reaches three quarters of a mile down. Okay. So then tell us about some of the other mines that you visited in other parts of the world, because I'm kind of curious, like the differences between a mine in Canada, like I'm Canadian citizen, developed country. But I mean, I remember in your, when I was doing my research for this, you've been to Mongolia and you've traveled all over the world and visited. So I want to kind of understand what the difference is in for mines in some really out there places opposed to somewhere in North America might be a little bit more regulated or a little bit more developed. Uh, That's a wide open topic. So (laughs) 
you mentioned in way out places. So you do have to be very careful about resource nationalism. There are many countries that I call funny places where I just won't go to buy their mines because you don't know that you'll still own it tomorrow. So they'll nationalize it, you mean? Yes. During the last cycle, one of the greatest uh, discoveries was in Ecuador. And I had a position in the stock and the government became greedy and got involved with the project. And it faltered down to the point where it was nearly worthless. In Mongolia, for example, when I went with Robert Friedland, another mining legend who I've known since 1986, he uh, invited me to come out to see the Oyu Togoy project in the Gobi Desert. And the difficulty of the environment was not very great, but the government there was an enormous pain in the neck. They would joke about whether it was easier to deal with the communists or whether it was easier to deal with the more capitalist type people in the government, depending on who took more money and who took less. And they hampered that project for over 10 years. Rio Tinto still has a headache with it. Aside from the resource nationalism, and you know, you have to be careful in many places in the world, despite how good a mine might be, there are some places you just, unless you can tolerate the risk of losing your entire investment, you shouldn't really go there. I was in Medellin a couple of years ago to see the Buridica project that was being run by Colombian Gold. And Colombia was a fine place to be investing. The project was basically a mountain of gold, and the infrastructure was in the valley below that. So gravity was working in their favor because they basically would mine it and the gold would drop down to the valley floor or in that direction. And so they organized the processes of the crushing and the milling and then the tailings dam at the end of it to have gravity work in their favor. So it was a very interesting project that way. And ultimately was sold to the Chinese. So that was very interesting engineering. I was at a place in uh, East Malaysia, which never became a mine, but I saw what the artisanal guys did. And you walk into this bat cave, literally, there was netting at the entrance of the cave for the locals were catching bats. And you walk in and all of a sudden you look up and you're looking up five stories, six stories. And how they mined the silver out of this was just amazing without heavy equipment. You know, I've been up to over 10,000, I think it was at 11,000 feet up in Chile in the Andes Mountains to see some projects there. And some of the people on the uh, mine tour uh, got altitude sickness. I had to sit down for a minute, have a cup of coffee and get used to it. And even at that height, they're still able to conduct the mining in such a way so as to profitably produce the ore. So sometimes it's the environment, sometimes it's the country, sometimes it's the topography. It's very important that these companies develop relationships with the local communities and the indigenous people, because they're looking to not only safeguard their land and water, but they're also looking for employment, especially in these out-of-the-way places. You go up to British Columbia or in the Amazon rainforest, and they're looking for jobs. They, yes, they want to keep their air and water clean, and that's extremely important to them, but they want employment too. And so these companies are looking to train and hire the local people. Okay. Well, we're going to Peru this week, so I understand about having to be prepared for the altitude. I'd live at exactly sea level. I mean... I'm up on the 15th floor, but I'm about as sea level as you can get. So this will be interesting to be up in the Andes. Now, with these mines, are they always the big 
Canadian companies or big U.S. companies that own the mines in the foreign countries that you've been to, or are any of them owned by local smaller mining companies? I've been to all to the range. Peru, by the way, is a funny place and I won't invest there. No? Okay. Let's dig into that because that's curious. Tell me why. Well, I had some investments there. And when the new government came into power, the president was literally hiring thugs and people that should not be in the heads of cabinet, at least in a from our view uh, in the world, you wouldn't want them running your government. The potential for graft, the potential to change the mining laws to increase the royalties to the government were very, very high. And uh, they were having some issues there with several mining companies. There's a big copper company that's been under assault for since for many months now because of that. So I withdrew all my investments in Peru as soon as the election happened. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, my main job is helping set up company formations and bank accounts, and I do consulting for the offshore space. And over the last, I want to say, year to two years, we've gotten a lot of Peruvians who are trying to get their money out of the country. So it's very interesting what's happening in some of these other countries. Same with Bolivia. And some, well, Bolivia has been a best for a while, but Peru, we've gotten an influx of people over the last couple of years. Interesting that it corroborates what I'm saying. It's South America, historically, as you know, has swung from left to right, back and forth. There are some countries that have been more stable than others and others that it just it's not worth going there. Yeah, of course. I mean, we were in Uruguay a couple of weeks ago. Very, very stable, very, very pro-business. But I mean, we were in Brazil as well. And if Bolsonaro gets out and Lula gets in, I mean, I'm genuinely concerned about that country. What's going to happen there? Uh, Yeah, I can understand that. The size of the companies. So I've been with Ed Projects from Kinross, a very, very large mining company in Chile. What was called Beach Bima Gold at the time was a significant player. That company was sold and now they've reorganized as called B2 Gold. And they invest in some almost funny places. Like they were very successful in Nicaragua. I was there at the mine opening, standing about 20 feet from Danny Ortega. I had six guys with machine guns right behind me. It was very interesting seeing the mine opening and the Cardinal was there and the head of the union was there. Yet they were able to work with that socialist government. They're in Mali, which is not a very friendly place, but they are able to work in the particular region in Mali that they're in. And uh, they've been very successful at uh, skirting areas. I went to Russia uh, with them around 2004, I think it was, in the Chukotka region. Roman Abramovich was the chieftain or czar of that particular region. And it was interesting. We got into first Magadan and then the main area. And the, the city, he had a whole city painted bright blue, yellow, and red colors because it's above the Arctic Circle. And when it's dark out, it's very depressing. So he did that to brighten up the town. But they were able to work successfully in uh, Siberia and then got out. And Kinross ended up buying them. And now they've actually lost that entire mine due to what's going on with the Russian situation. So I've been with some big companies. I traditionally don't invest in the Newmonts and the Barracks of the world. Not that there's anything wrong with them. The institutions tend to invest in the biggest companies because they're most liquid. They can buy many shares of Barrick and Newmont and uh, Yamana and these types of firms. Those companies are mining two to five million ounces a year or more. And it's very difficult to replace those ounces. So not only do they replace them through the drill bit, but they end up buying the middle and junior size companies on the market to buy their ounces. 
And so that's the space I generally am working with the juniors because they have many things going for them. They have the excitement of a new discovery and expanding ore body that they're drilling out. Their production is growing, or I'm looking for companies that are growing their production each year. So you have a growth company within the gold space that tends to sometimes buffer the ups and downs of the gold pricing. And then you always have the potential for a buyout from a larger company. And those are the exciting days when you wake up and all of a sudden, you know, you're up 25 or 30% because somebody's taking you out. Then, of course, you got to go find your next investment, which, you know, it's not always the easiest thing. Uh, you have to, you know, do your due diligence and find. So I invest in a spread of them. But the junior companies, I've been with some visiting some very small operations that are heat bleaching 30,000 ounces a year. And the bigger ones are heat bleaching 100, 150,000, 200,000 ounces a year. So it's important when I go to site to look management in the eye. I did that even before I was in the mining business. But you're also assessing potential problems where cost overruns can happen, potential problems. And also the people on the ground, everybody from the truck drivers to the drillers to the crew blasters, the people in the mill, you want to make sure uh, you get the right feeling from the personnel. Uh, by the way, the truck drivers, interesting. The mining companies prefer the women to drive the trucks. Okay. How, why is that? They're safer with the equipment. Okay. They're more careful drivers. <laughs> yeah, I suppose the equipment is pretty expensive. So you want to oh, make yeah. sure that you have the safest driver for that. Oh, and you're driving 100-ton trucks for sure. <laughs> So, okay. So with all of these trips and all of the mine visits that you've done, are you usually doing these trips on your own dime or are you invited out there or what does that look like? That's a good question. So I am going on my own dime. The company doesn't pay for that. My own firm doesn't pay for that. I go because I'm looking after my clients and my interests. Usually I'm traveling with analysts from Canada they are usually, I'm invited to go because the companies know that I take sizable positions in their stocks. They like to have their stocks disseminated in the U.S. as well as in Canada. Most of the companies are Canadian. There's a number of U.S. So they say, Larry, you know, we're having a trip to Argentina or so-and-so in June. Would you like to go? Sure. And usually there's anywhere from a couple to a dozen analysts on the trip. Some of the trips are much bigger than that. And usually one or two U.S. guys, usually one or two U.S. funds. In my travels during the last cycle, there were only five of us that I knew of that were brokers or that went on site visits. I knew the other four. We would bump into each other now and then. But uh, mostly I'm traveling with the analysts and they respect the fact that I'm paying for the trip myself. They're getting paid to go and write a research on report on the company. So they look at me sometimes if they don't know me, I say, what are you doing here? What do you do? And I tell them. And they say, hmm. when we're traveling about the mine, I'm very careful not to ask them their opinion on this or that. I may ask them, well, what does this mean? Can you explain that? But I don't ask for a judgment. I don't want them to feel like I'm picking their brain. I don't want them to be closed lipped and not speak with me. Interestingly enough, one of the best parts of those trips is at the end of the day when we're having a beer before dinner or after dinner or both <laughs> or during dinner <laughs> or during dinner. And we talk about every other mining company on the planet. Okay. And that's where the most valuable information comes from. Sure. That makes sense. So I guess that you kind of have one ear to the ground and you're going to be listening in on what they're saying, not just about that project, but in relation to other projects or gossip that they would have heard about different trips that they've been on or different things that have crossed their desk then. 
Exactly. And having been on many of these, I can throw in my experience or throw in a line to try to stimulate a discussion. It's proved invaluable over the years to uh, have learned about uh, these. Because even though you're visiting one mine, now I'm getting assessments and information about 20 other projects. Amazing. So on our new website at expatmoney.com, I have put out a special report on getting a plan B residency and instant citizenships. I think that this is really important stuff and I want to get this into your hands straight away. You can grab it for free if you go to expatmoney.com and you'll see it right at the very top. All you need to do is just put in your name and email address. You're going to be able to access it instantly. There's no cost for it. I'm not selling anything. I just want you to get this information. You're going to be able to join my newsletter. You're going to be able to stay up to date with all all of the important work that we're doing at Expat Money. And yeah, it's going to be amazing. So go to expatmoney.com, grab the special report on getting a plan B residency or instant citizenship and enjoy, read it. It's important stuff. I think you're really going to like it. Okay, let's get back into the interview. So tell me then, when you do these trips, are they all business or is it business and pleasure? I asked this because I had someone the other day who was asking me, oh, are you going on vacation or are you going for work? And I'm like, everything is work and everything is fun. I mean, there's no difference between me, between my work and my fun. And I bring my wife and my kids with me sometimes. Sometimes I go by myself, but I'm kind of curious from your side, is everything business and everything fun or are you going there for a mission and that's it and you come home? It can be both. Sometimes it's just been a mission, but most of the time I usually put a couple extra days in to sightsee and look around. You mentioned Uruguay recently. When I was in Argentina visiting a company that uh, was very successful and got bought out, I ended up in Buenos Aires and I was supposed to go across the pond to Uruguay the next day. And when I was at site the day before, a friend of mine who had just come back from another country told me about a project that was having some difficulties or that could lead to you know, problems. And I thought about it. And the next morning, instead of going on my sightseeing trip, I spent the whole day in the hotel calling clients saying, we need to sell today. It was Friday and Monday, the stock dropped 25% and we were able to preserve our profits. So it was very fortunate for clients. I didn't get to do my sightseeing. When I went uh, on the other side of the world, as you know, it's a very long trip to Asia, especially from the East Coast of North America. And I took you know, several days when I on the way to Mongolia to visit Macau. It was business also, to be honest, because I had a big position in our traditional portfolio, our balanced portfolio in Las Vegas Sands. And it was during the, the boom in the gambling stocks. So I got an invitation to visit the Las Vegas Sands Casino in Macau. There was a lady who ran, who was the manager. Her name was Ober Petruchuk. And she invited me to take a personal tour of the facility and it was really interesting at in the basement, there was a three a table, maybe 10 by 10 of the architectural layout of what was now known as the Kotai Strip, which is a big gambling mecca in Macau. And I saw where all the roads and buildings and everything was going to be. And it was very cool. So I spent a few days visiting Hong Kong and Macau in that area and then flew over to Alambatar to meet up with Robert Friedland and the rest of the group to tour around Mongolia. And I didn't ex know what to expect, but the first several days were cultural. We visited historic sites. I got to see the Mongolian Olympics, which was a fascinating experience. I'll never forget every detail of it. Then the trip out to the mine. Okay. I think that this is really interesting because 
I don't know for your work, but for my work, I need to understand the culture. I need to understand the people. I need to understand the mentality and the work ethic and how everything fits together. Because in my work, we're really dealing with so much geopolitics. I would imagine you have to deal with a lot of geopolitics from the investment side as well. So understanding the mentality and the people and the direction of the government would probably play very strongly into the performance of the mine or the investment itself. Well, absolutely. And I did have an investment in that project in Mongolia, for example. And at some point, it's obvious the government was going to constantly be a problem. And I ended up selling it. We took a loss on it and we moved on. Not every soldier is going to cross the finish line. And that's why you buy you know, a number of companies, no matter what industry you're in. So you do have to keep an eye on that. It's like I said about funny places. Uh, there's some places I just, I don't care how good the project was. There was a project I discovered at the mining conference three years ago in East Asia, and it was great. But the locale, I did not like the government, and I was concerned. It turned out that the project went up four times my money. It would have anyway, but I couldn't take the risk. Sure. Yeah. You can't kiss all the girls. I understand. So you come to a mine, you arrive in a new country. Can you walk us through your process? Like, what are you looking for? What is it that's going to set off alarm bells? What are you looking for that will make you go, okay, this is really interesting. I need to dig into this deeper. I want to understand your process. So of course, you know, once you make the assessment that it's a safe place to mine and to actually physically visit as well, you take the trip. So when I went to Russia, for example, and visited the B2 gold mine in north of Anadir. I get into the airport and I look at the airport and it's dark and there are giant panels that have fallen off the walls. I walk through the metal detector and as I walk through, I look back and it's not plugged in. Then, you know, we go through a plugged in metal detector and go through security. And it was a part of the world that was not wealthy, but it was thriving. And point of the story is I had to separate the quality of what the mining people were doing versus their community, okay? Because what they were doing was truly amazing, building an ice road to the project and getting this thing built and delivering the gold. So they were able to do that in a hostile uh, environmental area. The government wasn't hostile at all. So I'll try to answer your question more directly. You're looking at the infrastructure. Can the equipment and people get into the mine easily? Can they fly the ore out easily? Are there, regarding geopolitics, what are the royalties that the government is taking? Is there any suspicion of under-the-table money? If there is, what is it, if you can ferret that out? I have not invested in companies that I've discovered have done that. I know that it happens, but mostly it's rare. But there are areas where it's requested by the locals and... I'd say all the people that I've dealt with have walked away from those type of situations. I find the mining people to be extremely ethical. There's always bad apples in every industry, but I think there's a, they're a very good group of people because they're mostly engineers by training. So I'm looking at the potential problems with ore dilution is a big problem. This was a big problem of a project I visited in Sinaloa, Mexico. They were constantly scooping up dirt that there was no ore in it. So the dilution to the mill was terrible, and the results obviously were horrendous. So what are they doing to correct the problem? Have they a a good solution? Are the people on the ground qualified to understand what they're doing and to take corrective measures? 
is it a cohesive management team? There was a project I saw where you could tell there was something between some of the middle management at the mine. That was a yellow flag. You want to look for that because you don't want to have to go through revolving personnel, bring people up to speed. And when people leave a mining company, you always want to ask, why did they leave? What was the issue? And it's very difficult to get to the bottom of that. You're not going to get it out of the company. You're going to get it from elsewhere. You know, you've got to start making calls and call other analysts and call people that know people and go through the, the chain that way. And sometimes it's nothing. And other times you learn it's more serious. Trying not to name names as I think about the different projects where these things occur. You know, there was one up in Canada where there was definitely a management issue. And when the fellow left, I could tell that it was more than just management. There was a problem. And that's why he left. So I go through that process. I go through the walking tour of the facility, whether it's underground or, you know, above ground. You know, is the equipment quality, you know, are they having any trouble getting replacements? You know, during the last cycle, one of the biggest problems was tires. You couldn't get spare tires. And if the tires are bald, just like on the road, you skid out, you can't climb the inclines with a hundred ton truck with bald tires. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. And they were at a premium. It was hampering some facilities. And now with the supply chain as it is, that's a question I'm constantly asking about spare parts. And a lot of companies are putting in second generators and stockpiling extra equipment, spare parts, just in case. This is super interesting because everything you've just listed is something that you would never know by sitting at your desk back home. I mean, none of that was like, oh, I read their balance sheet and I'm pouring over the numbers and I'm looking at the financials of the company. A lot of this is the intangible stuff, the things that you need to touch and see and smell and feel and, and talk to people and understand. Yeah. Um, up, in, uh, up in your home country, up in Canada, I was at a project and the water was just pouring. There was water everywhere. It was coming in a little bit from surface, but everywhere you walked underground, there was more water coming in and pumping it out was essential. And it would turn out to be a big problem for that company. There are so many different issues that can occur. A new um, regional government can come in and decide, and this happens more in the less developed countries than the more developed countries, decide, oh, I want a piece of this project, or I want to increase the royalty. Out in Asia, uh, Philippines, federal government was very happy with this particular mine, but the local chieftain wanted it for himself, and it was causing huge problems for this company. And it was I exited it because of that, and it, years it took, three or four years before that was resolved. So you have rock slides. You have to make sure the rock is competent. You know, when these companies are digging underground, they put bolts up into the rock to secure it more tightly. You probably don't know this, but when you're at the rock face where they're actually drilling for the, the ore in the vein, above that, it all gets caged. So there could be no rock fall. But very often, they're using remote control equipment that goes in and blasts it. And then they have a scooper that they then go in and scoops it out. So there are no people actually there at the high-risk site. In Brazil, I was at a company that had tremendous rock problems, and there were it was unstable rock, and they had to shut the mine down. Just wasn't safe to keep sending people in? You couldn't, yeah. You didn't know wow. what was going to happen. So they go to do a blast, and then they're going to end up burying their own people or something? They could do that, yeah. So you have to look for competency of the rock as well. 
Yeah, there are innumerable problems. All your modeling is done from the surface. You're drilling and you are taking from guesswork to less guesswork where that ore actually is, where that vein actually is. But until you go underground, you don't know 100% for sure that you're in the right spot. In addition to flooding and rock stability and controlling the dilution of the ore, sometimes you get metallurgical surprises when you bring it to the mill is, you know, are you using the right combination of chemicals? Have you ground the rock fine enough? Have you ground it too fine? You know, what's going on there? You have labor issues, labor strikes. Sometimes you have a uh, NGO, a non-governmental organization that doesn't like the project. This is going on with one in Brazil right now. There was a project in Mexico where a competing labor union wanted to be hired and they were blockading the mine. And this went on for quite some time. So there are all kinds of issues that, as you say, you don't necessarily think about when you're sitting at the desk until you're actually there and saying, okay, how do I make this work? Well, I love this. I think this is super interesting. But on the technical side, do you do your technical analysis before you even plan a trip out there? Do you do it afterwards? Or you really do everything based on the intangibles that you see when you're at the mine? It's always a work in progress, I think. So you, I have to be interested in the potential for the project. Is the ore body going to get bigger? Can this thing grow? Do they have the right management team? You know, I look at the people in the place first. Look at the project because good people can take an average project and make a go of it and make money. Bad management can screw up a really good project. So management is exceedingly important. I follow great managers from mine to mine. I do that in my traditional portfolio too, where we find great leaders in the investment community, in the, in the uh, industrial space. We follow them from Boeing to Ford and so on. Same thing in the mining industry. You want to follow Ross Beatty and you want to follow Pierre Lassonde and you want to follow some of these legends that have been successful time and time again. They'll, they'll make a mistake every now and then, but having two, three, four decades of experience, they've learned a lot. So it's really all about the story then. Yes, the story is very important. So you make your initial assessments and then if I get an invitation to go, if I can still do it, given the parameters of family life and everything else, I go out and then you, you know, get deeper into it. Okay. Now, all of the mines or the companies or the mining companies that you are involved in, are they publicly traded or some of these private companies as well? I only invest for my clients in the public space. I might personally do a little bit on the private side. I'm not a huge fan of the private investments because if you're wrong, you can't get out. Mm -hmm. No secondary market. No. So I have participated in a few private placements where they were in the process of going public and I took founder shares. So that was good, but only public companies. I asked that because I'm kind of curious. So earlier you mentioned that you invest usually in the junior miners. I thought maybe we could circle back a little bit and kind of flesh that out a little bit more. At what stage are you looking at, at the company? You're looking at they're just doing exploration. They've already broken ground or they're already found deposits. Or I, I'm kind of curious, what is the sweet spot for you in, in your career over the last decades? Okay. So the explorers, which very often are just companies that are out drilling in what we call moose pasture, very high risk, a lot of slick promoters, sometimes just mining investors' wallets because they're taking fat salaries and sure. they're drilling and drilling and looking and they don't come up with anything. My sweet spot is in companies that have already 
delineated a deposit. So it's already discovered. The stock has already come back from the discovery enthusiasm. And you can tell they're competent people that can build a mine or at least develop the project further and then make a decision. Do we want to become miners or do we want to sell out and then move on to the next project? Okay. And some companies can do both or either or other management teams, they're strictly one or the other. So that's the sweet spot because, again, you get the potential for them to expand that deposit, new discovery, more ounces, higher stock price often follows. The potential for the buyout then is also there if they can continue to grow that deposit big enough to bring in the appetite of a bigger company. So that's really the best area. The majors, as I mentioned before, not as much interesting to me. Uh, I do have position in one of the royalty companies. These are companies that will, are the bankers to the mining industry. They will lend money to a mining company that doesn't want to dilute their stock further by issuing more shares or take on high debt. So they'll do a, what's called a streaming deal, where they will negotiate to get $150 million today to build the mine. And in return, they'll sell that company all their silver at $5 an ounce until they get their money back, plus whatever profit you know is built into the contract. So those are good long-term investments in the mining space and good part of a portfolio. But uh, my sweet spot is the juniors. That's where you know I can usually get the biggest impact for the investment that I'm making. So do you usually go for the long-term or you do more of the speculative and short-term and try to get in and out? Generally, I'm a longer-term player, but in the gold and silver space, as you know, prices are volatile. The mining stocks go up and down two to three times the percentage that the bullions go up and down. So there's a lot of wiggle room. And if you can catch it right, if I'm with a company that is not the biggest grower, but I own it because I'm in for the trend, if I can catch a wave and get out, I'll do that. And then come back in at lower at a later price, hopefully lower. Many of the junior companies, though, I prefer not to try to time that because they're projecting to go from 100,000 ounces to 150 to two to 250. And that growth path, I don't want to try to time the market with that. I might miss something. So I'm in there because I believe the underlying trend for precious metals is higher given the circumstances. So I'm in the big wave. And if I miss some of the middle waves, that's okay. Okay. That makes sense. So any new trips coming up or dream trips or mines that you want to visit or even countries that you would like to go and see what the investment landscape looks like in those places? Interesting. There's a mine I want to visit in Guanajuato, Mexico. It's a small project, but uh, I'm interested in it. I'd like to go to Finland. I think Finland has some great opportunity. Uh, I don't know if geopolitically this is the right time to go, uh, given what's going on in the world, but it's a, a fairly new uh, greenstone belt. Uh, Agnico Eagle has a uh, project there for many years called the Kitala Mine. And south of there, there's several projects that are being explored. And there were some really good results coming from one of those companies today that I'd like to go there and uh, see the country and see the projects there. If I happen to be there in the winter, the Northern Lights would be spectacular. I don't know that I really want to go through 30, 40 below temperatures again. I lived in Minnesota for a while and that was okay. Well, I used to live in a Calouette. I don't know if you know where that is in the Baffin Islands. It's right next to Greenland in the Canadian high Arctic. And we saw Aurora Borealis every single day, all winter long. And it was very beautiful, but yeah, it was minus 50, minus 55 degrees Celsius in Canadian high Arctic. And I was there for 366 days. Well, half of the year was quite warm. Half of it was quite cold, but 366 days. And then I was done. And 
if I never go back, it'll be too soon. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I'd like to go to your country, to Panama. There's a project there I'd like to see, and I'd like to see Panama. I, I hear very good things about it. Yeah, Panama has some mines, but I don't know that they're famous for the precious metals. I think they do more of just the, the regular minerals and copper and things like this, the mining here. There is gold there. There is, yeah. Amazing. I think I'll have to check that out as well because I haven't done my research on that. So any last advice or tips for people who are interested in getting into the mining space, either from the investment side or from kind of the hobby side? Because it sounds to me like you really, really enjoy this stuff. It's more than just a job for you. Yes, it's a passion of mine. I live, eat and breathe gold for the last 40 years. So it's fun for me. It's enjoyable and it's cyclical though. So investors have to be aware there are times to be in this space and times not to be in the space. The risks are high in terms of volatility risk. You know, there's all kinds of risks with mines as we've talked about. So it's important to either do a lot of homework yourself or work with somebody who knows the field. You need to be careful. I attend two conferences a year in person. Well, it used to be three before COVID. It will be again. And then several in between. And I'm on conference calls and earnings calls. So, you know, these people know me. I know them. And it's you got to keep the tabs on things. So just to be careful and you know, talk to somebody who knows what they're doing. So strong stomach. Make sure <laughs> if you're going to get into this, make sure you have a strong stomach for volatility. True. I mean, the last cycle, the gold stock index went from 60 to 600, I think it was, went up about nine and a half times your money. And gold bullion went up, you know, about six and a half times your money. So the leverage is there if you catch it right, you know, but on the way down, it's just the opposite. It could be very ugly. So you have to be careful. Brilliant. Larry, I love this conversation. Super, super interesting. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to find out more about what you do, where can we send them? Thank you, Mikhail. It's a pleasure being here, and I really enjoyed speaking with you today. If anyone has further questions, please have, have them reach out to me by phone or email at Raymond James at 203-635-5409 or by mail at 285 Riverside Avenue, Westport, Connecticut, 06880. You can also reach me at sharfandselvin.com. Raymond James & Associates, Inc. is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, SIPC. Investing in commodities is generally considered speculative because of the significant potential for investment loss. These markets are likely to be volatile and there may be sharp price fluctuations even during periods when prices overall are rising. Gold is subject to the special risks associated with investing in precious metals, including but not limited to price may be subject to wide fluctuations. The market at times may be relatively limited. Some sources are concentrated in countries that have the potential for instability and the physical gold market is unregulated. Okay. Thank you so much, Larry. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Michael. You have a great day. Okay. What a fantastic episode today. I hope you guys got a ton of knowledge, a ton of inspiration. I hope you guys learned lots from this. Now, if you guys have kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews or anything like this, if you have someone in your life ages 8 to 19 and you don't like what's happening in the educational system right now, then my suggestion is to leave. We actually are creating a solution for that. It's called Expat International School of Freedom and Entrepreneurship. I have partnered with my friend Michael Strong. He was a guest on episode 115 of the podcast. I suggest that you guys go back and listen to that. It is very enlightening. And we're going to be tackling a lot of the problems, not just for the expat space and international schools, 
but really what is happening in public education. Now, I had a pretty terrible experience in public education when I was growing up. If you guys have been on my newsletter or my podcast for any length of time, you've probably heard the stories about this. And you know what? I don't want any other kids to go through the same type of thing that I did. And that's one of the main reasons that I am so passionate about this project. We have kids in the program right now. The program is up and running and the kids are having a phenomenal time. The feedback has been amazing and they're learning so much. And we're actually bringing joy back to school and education again. You've probably heard me harp on schools before. My real gripe is government-run schools. I'm really against these in all forms. But what we've developed here is really, really special. It's based on Socratic thought. There's a lot of dialogue. We're going to be dealing with a lot of entrepreneurial ventures. We're going to be talking about money, how money works, high-level mathematics, reading, reading comprehension, foreign languages. There's going to be a lot of things like graphic design, video editing, how to write a resume, how to build a business, how to do emails, how to do content marketing. We're even going to have special classes that I'm going to teach myself about publishing a massive podcast like we have at Expat Money. So a lot of really exciting things going on. If you guys want to get involved, if you want to learn more about it, if you have a friends or family who might want to get involved, all you need to do is go to expatschool.io. You can sign up for our free newsletter there. We're going to have regular updates about what is happening. And if it makes sense for your family, if you have a child ages 8 to 19, then fill out the form and we'll schedule a call together. And that's it. Go to expatschool.io and we will see you next Wednesday on the podcast. Have a great day. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.